0: Dead Rock Stars, with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome, everybody, once again to another fantastic episode of Dead Rock Stars, the ultimate rock podcast. Mick, wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'm feeling a little <laughs> more caffeinated than Mick today. I'm certainly much more enthusiastic. It's definitely the best rock-related podcast ever recorded. Now, today, <laughs> we're talking about a bloke who does indeed rock, did indeed rock, but he's not uh, what we would call a Lemmy, a Ronnie James Dio, the subject of our earlier stuff. We are, of course, talking about... Lou Reed. The great Lou Reed. The great uh, rock and
1: roll animal, as he was known in the 70s. But it doesn't fit into a category as easily as, say, Lemmy or Dio
0: or Linus or one of so those greats.
1: No, which makes him interesting. Oh, I mean, one yeah. of the great things about Phil Linus is that, you know, you couldn't possibly mistake him for a ferret... For a, for for a, a ferret?
0: For a heavy heard metal... It here first, everyone. A ferret
1: <laughs> metal artist. <laughs> most of the most interesting rock stars brought something like, else. They um, stoats and weasels. They brought something else to the table. Table. Bond Scott, you know, and far more to the... Will you shut the fuck up about furry fucking...
0: Fuck words. Venus in furs, of course. Is that where you got the idea of talking about furry animals uh, from? Carry on, please, Mick. What do you want to know? Well, look, everyone. My friend uh, Mick Wall here, esteemed author, journalist, uh, and me, slightly less esteemed author and journalist. As you know, we like to focus our attention on the great and the good of the departed of rock music. And as I was saying earlier, before Mick started talking about mammals for some reason, I, I don't know why, Lou Reed was, was really one of a kind. Like Barry, Ro- who talked and, about Rock earlier? and roll animal. Rock and roll mammal. Said, same thing, uh, yeah, isn't it? More or less, for our purposes, yeah. Um, no, I think just for all purposes, no, an I'm, animal I'm is a mammal. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. He, he was a mammal. Mm. All right, so where do we start with the great Lou Reed? You wrote a great book about him, Mick. Uh, I recall he died in, I want to say, 2013. Mm-hmm. And he did. You, you wrote a book the same year. Was that a difficult task, complex one, fun, interesting?
1: I wrote about Lou Reed a lot in his life, and I always found him very, very difficult to write about, simply because... I admired him so much and I loved the music so much and it had been such a big influence Mm. on my life, my own writing and my own uh, general appreciation of music. I remember back in 1984 uh, shoehorning a review of Lou Reed's New Sensations album into yeah. the pages of Kerrang! Wow! And in those days, um, you know, I was writing reviews for fun. Big, long reviews, massive, big reviews of Iron Maiden and people like that. And I just had to come up with 300 words on Lou Reed. Yeah. It took me all day. And at the end of it, it still didn't work for me. Because... You know, everything he did, to my mind, came with everything he'd done before. Yeah. So it was very, very hard to convey that in 300 words. Yeah. So given the book to do, I actually really enjoyed it. I yeah. mean, I, I wrote it fast. Lou Reed was famous at one particular for a lot of his career, but one particularly really brilliant period in the 70s where he just churned this stuff out. Kind of hit and miss in many ways. Yeah. But when it hit, it was wild and unpredictable. So I tried to do the book like that, and I, mm. I loved it. I mm. loved it. Of course, when I'd finished, I thought, right, I'm now going to write everything I ever do like this from now on. But <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah,
1: didn't work. Lou Reed was one of those people, like Bob Dylan, yeah. who took rock music into a very literary area. Yep. I mean, Lou famously, right up to his dying day, always characterized his own artistic creations as literature done to music you know a lot of bands you know talk to metallica you know that their, their influences are black sabbath
0: yes, yeah.
1: uh, deep purple aerosmith you talk to aerosmith and they'll say led zeppelin and the stones yeah lou reed's influences he loved doo-wop music in the mm, 50s mm, mm. but his influences were entirely literary hubert selby jr mm-hmm. Delmore Schwartz, who actually mentored him at university. William Burroughs. This is a sort of intellectual step up from the usual set of influences, isn't it? Completely. Mm. and um, like me. I'm
0: I'm quite like that myself.
1: Yeah, I've noticed, Mm. yes. And what happened was he wanted to be a pop star like all great musical artists start out wanting to be but he found himself by luck really as part of the Andy Warhol entourage Mm. in the early to mid 60s at a time when Warhol himself was a very transgressive figure you know it's not real art you know he's painting soup cans he's doing silk screens of photographs of Marilyn Monroe that's not real art and he's making these films that that don't appear to have a beginning a middle or an end Mm, and mm. and they're about these awful types that just take drugs and talk bollocks and (laughs) shag each other and there's one film about a building that lasts 24 hours and it's just one shot of a building i mean Mm, that's not mm, real film you know that was warhol in the 60s and he very much mentored this idea not just with lou reed but everybody that was in that scene at Mm. his studio in New York, which he called The Factory. And Warhol essentially created a group called The Velvet Underground as part of what he called the Plastic Exploding Inevitable. Mm. It sounds quaint now, the idea, but in those days it just hadn't been done, which was a stage with music, theatrical presentations, so he'd have his own movies, Mm. not as a back projection behind them, but actually playing on top of them. Yeah. He would have dancers, but not like the Ronettes. He used to have Gerald Melanga with a whip. Uh, explain uh, who that is for people who don't know. It's one know, of like Warhol's me. disciples, really. One uh, of his superstars. Well, as they later became known. Yeah, yeah, he appeared yeah. in lots of Warhol movies mm. and very good-looking guy, mm. very into S&M. Oh. And he'd be on stage with a whip and bondage and this extraordinarily loud music played by this band where the drummer only had uh, one drum, a woman drummer named... My- Mo, yeah, sorry, exactly. No. And uh, she would stand there and bong, 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 mm. bong, bong. Mm. Uh, John Cale, nominally the bass player, but actually a classically trained viola player. Welsh. And a Welshman, yeah. And Lou, not the greatest guitar player in the world, but very good at at writing songs and just sort of making these... Everything that a group was supposed to do, they did the opposite. You know, he he wasn't a brilliant singer. He was a vocalist. Mm -hmm. Their main vocalist was this blonde, beautiful Mm -hmm. ice queen named Nico, who herself had been uh, the star of several European art house movies in the late 50s and early 60s. And Warhol decides... He doesn't even know if she can sing. He yeah. just thinks, wouldn't she look amazing on stage? She's like six foot three, yeah. Amazonian, but uh, so had that real kind of German expressionist sort of glamour. Mm, yeah, yeah. So for Warhol, this is an art event. For Lou Reed, it was a, a way of kind of sneakily becoming a songwriter with a re- recording contract. Uh, they got a deal because anything Warhol did got a deal because he always made lots of money for everybody he worked with. But for Warhol, Nico was the star. Mm. But for Lou Reed, he hated it that there was this chanteuse. Mm-hmm. So by the time they released their very famous first album now, uh, The Velvet Underground featuring Nico, mm-hmm. with the um, banana, uh, banana yeah. which is now so iconic. Yeah.
0: Was it peelable? Am I right saying The that? original
1: one was peelable. Yeah, yeah. If you can find a copy of that now, you, you've got yourself a, pretty much an original Andy Warhol piece of art but Lou Reed had managed by the time they got to record that album he'd managed to squeeze Nico down to singing just three tracks mm, mm. and the rest he sang anyway to move the story along eventually they shed Nico Nico was gone i think by the second album mm, mm. kale was gone by the third and Lou Reed established himself very much as the as John Lennon was to the Beatles more so in fact mm, you mm, know mm. as I'm trying to think of a good example but I don't know if there is one, but he became the de facto face, and voice, and sound of the Velvet Underground.
0: Are we uh, saying at this point that he was a driven, ambitious, perhaps uncharitable, unkind person? These things, you know, he pushed so hard, everyone fell away. Or is that saying too much?
1: Oh no, not at all. He was okay, a nasty
0: bitch. Ah, right. Let's. Um, let's I mean, let's this is New York. Look, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. New
1: York. In Andy Warhol's studio, <laughs> there's nothing peace and love. I mean, when the Lou Reed was famously when he was told that Jim Morrison had died, yeah. He responded, he died in a bathtub.
0: Fabulous. God. Oh, yeah. He sounds like a bit of hard work. Is that a statement um,
1: of the year? He was, well, yes, of course he was. But mm-hmm. so I'm sure were any other. I'm sure Dylan was no easy. <laughs> right. I'm sure John Lennon was a tremendous pain in the ass because these people insist on what for them is a no bullshit zone unless it's their bullshit. Sure, mate.
0: Dead Rock Stars. Too much fucking perspective.
1: But with Reed, here's a more interesting fact is yeah. that long before music, when he was a child uh, in the 50s, at a time when uh, lobotomizing your children was <sighs> in America was. Uh, de rigueur. Uh, well, not de rigueur. <laughs> Every child born didn't get lobotomized, but it was certainly a, an option. Right. Um, because he was gay or because he had homosexual impulses. Yeah. His parents took him to a series of electric shock treatment sessions. He did over a dozen. It's insane, isn't it? It really is insane. And frightening. Very frightening. Mm. And, of course, traumatising. Yeah. So by the time you you get Lou Reed in the mid-60s and late-60s with the Velvet Underground, you've got this guy who was an English major at university Mm. who'd undergone dozens of electric shock treatment therapies to cure him of his homosexuality. Mm. You've got a guy who's already mainlining speed into his veins. You've got a guy whose new father figure is Andy Warhol, where everything goes, in the 60s, where really everything did go. And he's in New York. I Mm. mean, Mm. only the tough survive. I mean, Lou Reed, um, he was as vulnerable as the next guy, but he was just really good at hiding it and... Coming up with uh, the ultimate kind of uh, riposte
0: to those things. and was he sort of full of rage, do you think? I think he was, definitely against his parents. I ask this because knowing a few journalists, as I do, who interviewed him at length and came away bruised by the experience, his image, and I always try and dig into this a bit, his image is generally one of an unpleasant person, and clearly that can't be all there was to him. I know he went through a traumatic childhood and pissed a lot of people off and was very angry. But that can't be it, can it? You know, there must have been something more to him. Oh, of course you know? there was, yeah. I, went, I, I mean, was, some of his yeah.
1: greatest songs are about love. Yeah, right. Tenderly musically played and arranged, actually, as well. Pale Blue then, Eyes from the Velvet Underground, one of yeah. the greatest love songs ever written. A Perfect Day, mm. one of the greatest love songs ever written. No, no, this was a rounded human being. Okay. But This is a rounded human being and his intelligent response to a fucked-up world. That i like. you know That's great and when people talk about being unkind to journalists i mean fuck journalists mm. most of them are wankers you and i know tons of them i, I wouldn't know. have them in the fucking house i'd love to deny it but i can't you know have <laughs> them tell me where i went wrong on a piece of work I fuck know. you I know. I know. you fucking aimless ass crawling piece of shit mm. go back to your typewriter in your middle class snigger snigger fucking life you know make a fucking record come and live at the factory and shoot some speed and then talk to me about oh i don't think you've done anything good
0: since walk on the wild side <laughs> fuck off walk on the wild side mm. uh, we're jumping ahead slightly that was on Transformer, am I right? Am I wrong? His second solo album, Right, yeah. okay. So the first solo album, Lou Reed didn't do well, as I recall. Well, it didn't do well commercially. I mean, but
1: you have to remember, almost nothing Lou Reed ever did, did well commercially. What did then? New York? Well, we'll get to that. The point is, is that the Velvet Underground, who are now considered the sort of Beatles of the alternative underground yeah. music scene, were completely unknown in their mm. time. Mm. No one bought those records. Mm. They were absolute commercial flops if they were around today they wouldn't get beyond one record the fact that they made four was simply down to the fact that a they were with warhol yeah. b in those days it was a small cottage industry the music business and they yeah. were prepared to you know take a leap of faith on artists that carried on uh, fighting the good fight But the fact is, they were unknown. It was only David Bowie that popularised their cause. Lennon was interested in one of their albums. Frank Zappa liked one of their albums. You know, there was a name recognition. Yeah. But it wasn't until Bowie, as he did with Iggy Pop, Mm -hmm. as he did with Mott the Hoople, until Bowie really came along and sang their praises at a time when David Bowie was the most listened to rock star in the World, the guy everybody paid attention to.
0: When was this, 71, 72? Uh, Pre-
1: 72. I mean, Bowie yeah. produced Transformer. Yeah. I mean, he'd made Ziggy. Ziggy came yeah. out in June 72. Transformer yeah. came out a few months later. Yeah. Bowie and Mick Ronson produced, arranged, did backing vocals. Rono played guitar. Yeah. They really did, as it were, produce that album for Lou Reed. It was recorded in London at the same place where Ziggy had been recorded. And as you rightly say, his first solo album had not done well. None of the Velvet Underground albums had done well. Transformer was almost a fluke. You know, Bowie was the hottest star in the world, music star in the world. The fact that he'd lavished all this attention on on this New York avant-garde artist Mm. really brought attention to it. But what put it over? What sold it? Yeah was Walk on the Wild Side. A fantastic song, but the production on that, you know, if you listen to that song again and you hear the strings in the background, mm. no computers to do it for you in those days. This mm. is a proper orchestral arrangement, I think done by Mick Ronson. You've got that fabulous saxophone at the end. You've got the inverted commas, coloured girls going doot yeah. do doot 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 do 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 Which was actually... No, it wasn't. I was ah. about to say <laughs> that okay. there was a, a popular story at the time. That was Bowie and Ronson. Yeah. It was a vocal female vocal trio called the Thunder Thighs. Ah. And they were the same ones that also sang back up on Mott the Hoople albums like uh, that song, The Golden Age of Rock mm-hmm. and Roll, mm-hmm. and uh, Honolucci Boogie. Right. And, Although it was Bowie and Ronson that did the backing vocals on All the Young Dudes uh, yes. which Bowie wrote and produced and what they were. Called. But um, Have you ever met um Herbie Flowers?
0: Uh, I haven't met Herbie Flowers, but of course he played the, famously played the upright double bass on the Walk on the, the Wild The only reason site. I mention him is that what's hilarious about that guy is that he's a lovely man, but he's the most straight-laced sort of conservative English dad bloke you could imagine. And yet he ended up playing bass on the most transgressive song ever recorded, which well, always makes me laugh. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, they were session musicians.
0: Yeah, well, it's just another gig for him. Just he played on gig. Space Oddity as well.
1: Yeah. But it's just... Um, And he was in Blue Mink and played on What the World Needs is a Great Big Melting Pot. Big enough, big enough, big enough (laughs) to take the world and all it's got. Keep it stirring for a hundred years or more. Turn out coffee-coloured people by the score. Bloody hell. Now you're talking. Transformer comes out. It does okay, but Walk on the Wild Side is kind of a a creeper hit. It creeps up. It becomes a hit single in America, Mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. It uh, drags the album into the charts behind it. And then Lou Reed does an extraordinary thing where instead of following that up... Yeah. You know, Bowie followed up Ziggy Stardust with Aladdin Sane, which was essentially Ziggy Part 2. Yeah. Lou Reed brings out an album called Berlin... Lou Reed then ventured into what you would definitely call career suicide even more forthrightly after that, but with Berlin, I (laughs) mean, that was literally like taking a six-inch nail and hammering it into your own head in terms of your career, Mm -hmm. now regarded as probably the biggest, inverted commas, downer album of all time. It was uh, an
0: extraordinary piece of work, but completely <clears throat> lambasted at the time. Critics yeah. found it disgusting and disgraceful. Now, this is my question, and I think it applies to many artists, but most specifically to Lou Reed. Why do these albums get panned at the time and then critically reappraised or reassessed, as the fucking phrase goes?
1: Well, we're back to these wanker journalists, you know. I mean, we in this really case, are. the wanker
0: journalists are often right, you know, because they recognise that something's really good.
1: No, no, no. At the time, Berlin was mm. considered abhorrent. I mean, in the extreme, it wasn't just, oh, this isn't very good. It was, what the fuck does he think he's doing? Mm-hmm. What is this horrible piece of shit? There's a track called The Kids on which you can actually hear young children screaming for mummy. Bob Ezrin's work? Yeah, Bob Ezrin's Kids. Mm. The whole thing is a concept album about two figures, Jim and Caroline, who are in a uh, what these days we would call a dysfunctional relationship? Mm, mm. He beats the shit out of her. They take heroin. They take speed. Eventually, her children are taken away. Eventually, she commits suicide. Christ. You know, it's not exactly a mm. a Disney classic. It's not "Roll with
0: It" by Oasis.
1: No, no, it really <laughs> isn't. You know, and you've just had a uh, Transformer, which has, has yeah. thrown you into the Bowie comet trail. Yeah. You know, at this point. The world is your your glittering lobster. All right. Um, do you mean oyster, by the way? No, I mean okay, lobster. No, just um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a kind of ironic pun. No, no, I, I missed the irony. No, I know your no, I know generation don't do me. irony. But, um, <laughs> not ironic. Someone's going to go. That's not ironic. Fuck off, Alanis. People took exception, but yeah, you have to yeah, remember yeah. when rock critics were the gatekeepers. Yeah. There's no social media. Radio is Radio 1, which at that time is ABBA and Brotherhood of Man. Mm. Mm. There's Top of the Pops. Mm. Well, you're not going to get on Top of the Pops with, you know, Caroline <laughs> says as she gets up off the floor, why do you hit me and beat me, you know. This is not wonderful Radio 1 we're talking no, about. No, no. The only way you could access that world, those artists, and be part of the conversation was the music papers. Right. And the music papers were in their fledgling state And they were populated by young guys. Some were hip, but mainly young would-be journalists Mm, who were mm, listening mm. to Neil Young, Santana. Mm, mm. And suddenly here's this Guy Lou Reed who wants to sing about smack addicts overdosing, beating up their wives and having their children taken away. I mean, it's a downer, man. (laughs) Say that in um, Bill Ward's accent. It's a downer. Thank you. Well, you know, Sabbath. Sabbath got the same kind of reaction. They were considered a fucking downer as well. But you're right. Decades later, when Berlin is, was regarded as, you know, this magnum opi. Yeah, yeah. It pissed me off because I loved Berlin. I was 15 when yeah. I bought Berlin. Right, right. I mean, that to me was like buying
0: a, a Dostoevsky novel. Yeah, yeah. It was heavy and there shit. there parallels, yeah. Did it, it, it appeal to shit? your 15-year-old self? Did you enjoy yeah. it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I found it absolutely harrowing. Yeah, yeah. But then I did lots of literature I was reading, or, or films. You would go and see, you know, you know. I wasn't a Eurovision Song Contest guy. You know, I wanted to get the good stuff and the dark stuff.
0: And it was the good stuff. Yeah. Um, and darkness, perhaps, is more prevalent. Um, man, I'm making a big point here. I'm pressing myself. Darkness, perhaps, is more prevalent in today's culture. You know, you can watch a violent cop show on TV, and it's kind of part of the mainstream. You, you can listen to fairly dark room yeah, music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then lesser. Yeah. So? less so back in the day as they say definitely and I think there was also
1: this residual resentment that he just had this huge hit and he had David Bowie in his corner and it was as if he'd squandered it and defiled the whole mm. pop
0: star the purity of it the purity the kind of joy of it you know I love it. it. why do we do this job I mean, all the journalists were surrounded by it <laughs> clearly not any of the people I know my friends a lot of them are, you know, terrible people, really, frankly, aren't they? Well, apart from you, Joel, I don't have any journalist friends. Mm.
1: I despise them all. Mm. And I always have done, particularly when I was an editor of The Bastards. But, <laughs> uh, useless, feckless Forced twats. to work with them. But here's the thing. You know, Lou Reed, the ultimate contrarian. So Berlin, which is an exquisite masterpiece, but considered utterly distasteful. Yeah. He follows that with an album called Sally Can't Dance, Mm, mm, which in America becomes an even bigger hit than Transformer. Now, this is the famous album where he's now shaved his hair into his skull. He's dyed it blonde. At a certain point, he shaves a swastika into the side of his head. Mm. He's doing uh, live shows where part of the act is where he mimes shooting up, actually ties up his arm and gets a hypodermic. This is the rock and roll animal phase. And Sally Can't Dance, Lou Reed himself uh, decided, was, you know, used to joke about the bigger piece of shit my record is, the more it sells. He talked about falling off the stool because he was smacked out and passing out while singing it. He talked about writing lyrics just seconds before he recorded them and, and kind of laughing at how bad they were, which actually. Is a piece of theatre because if you listen to that album, there are some fantastic songs on there. I mean, true New York underground classics. But because he vastly undersold it, and again, people were outraged. You know, not only does he deliver this piece of <laughs> shit, depressing, rubbish yeah. Berlin. now he comes out and says he wasn't even awake when he was recording this stuff and people are
0: buying it. I mean, he's just beyond the pale bastard, you know. Ha, ha, ha. Great stuff. What a massive uh, sort of kerfuffle. Huge kerfuffle. Perhaps the music was only the smallest part of all this. You know? Well, no, it was, it was an important part, but yeah, yeah. I think Lou Reed, you know,
1: at a time when you were making one or two albums a year... Yeah. This is partly a reaction to I mean no one gave Berlin a good review. Yeah. It was universally considered a disaster, a suicide mm-hmm. note. You know, uh, utterly the you know you've destroyed your career. Even his record company were telling him mm, this. Mm. There wasn't anybody going. You know what, Lou? They're all wrong. It's it's great. Did They're he all... have a manager? Spengarli? He had different managers. Yeah, yeah they, not many of them lasted because mm, he mm. was very demanding. But straight after Sally Can't Dance, you know, you get the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate
0: Are we fuck about off. M By any chance, metal machine music. See, I've sat through that. And Wait, uh, the whole thing? I have. You have not. I have, I did it once. And, Were you uh, on drugs? No, Christ no, I think I might have had a cup of tea. I just thought it was horrendous, terrible <laughs> bollocks. Me and you could have could have done it in five, uh, uh, in, in a no, day. No, no, no. Yeah, we could
1: have done no, it. No, no, no.
0: When Marcel... Um, I know where you're going. Go on.
1: ...brought out his toilet bowl and hmm. said, that's art. Everybody hmm. went, I could have done that. But they They didn't. fucking couldn't <laughs> because <laughs> yes, they no,
0: didn't. Yeah, I know. I'm aware of this argument. They well, no, It's it, not but an argument, it, it's a yeah. fact.
1: Okay, Warhol, some of his most famous paintings in the 60s were of dollar bills. Yes. you know He said in his book, I don't know what to do next. I don't know, what's my favourite thing? I'll paint mm. that. And he thought, money, mm. that's my favourite thing. So mm. he now does these huge silk screens of dollar bills and they're very successful and making lots of dollar bills. Now I can go, well, I
0: could have done that. Well, actually, I couldn't because it wouldn't have occurred to me in a million right, years. Right. Well I suppose what I mean is that you and I could replicate that. Yes, we wouldn't. Well, of course, we can idea, replicate yeah, yeah. it. But what's the point of that? Because, well, right, yeah. But why is that even an issue? Is because you kind of look for some artistry and some technical well, you know, well, amazingness from art the musicians. Well, is you. conceptual. but it's in the eye of the beholder, uh,
1: or the ear of a beholder, in mm. this case. Mm. I mean, on a purely literal level, you know what we're talking about uh, in the days of vinyl, a double record, yeah. double album, so two twelve-inch discs each side one, side two, side three, side four, coming to exactly 16 minutes, one second. In fact, a couple of the sides are 16.04 or yeah. whatever. But this was music, soundscapes, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Purely instrumental, no melody, no conventional structure. This was music made by guitars that were feeding back, but also tape recorders used yeah. to record that sound and then play it back on loops, so that you got what these days you might call a drone. You yes, know, oing, 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 although more subtle than that, very similar to what Steve Reich and Philip Glass were doing at the time was. It sounds as if on first glance, it's all one thing. But in fact, if you start on side one, by the time you get to the end of side one, if you play the beginning of side one and then move the needle over to the end of side one, you'll find by then it's actually changed considerably. But it's so subtle and so precise that, you know, you don't notice it, at least not at first. So this isn't a record you put on to go... Oh I love this. Uh this will cheer me up. You know th- this is the difference between in terms of art this is the difference between a Michelangelo yeah. where you just admire the technique you admire the substance but it's figurative and mm. you can it's good on the eye and you can follow it mm. to a Jackson Pollock yeah, okay. where people go well what the fuck's that mm. guys just throwing fucking paint yeah no,
0: I, I grasp this. You're yeah. right on
1: one level. The guy is throwing paint, Yeah, <laughs> but actually there's a method to his madness. But this is the dividing line between Lou Reed and, shall we say, Susie Quattro. Right. You know, similar period. Yeah. This is the dividing line between Lou Reed and Mick Jagger. Let's put it like that. This is the dividing line between Lou Reed and David Bowie until David Bowie somewhat emulated that approach with low, particularly side two. If you've been listening to Stockhausen... (laughs) Yeah, right. If you've been listening to Berlioz or, you know, trust me, what Lou Reed did didn't come out of nowhere. Mm, And yes, of course, it's veiled in contempt. It's veiled in self-loathing. It's a high art joke in many ways. It's an insult in many ways. Nevertheless... He did it, no one else did it, and we're still talking about it well, today. Yeah. We're still debating it today. I love
0: talking about this album. I remember there's a, there's a magazine called Terrorizer, which is an extreme metal thing. And uh, they once ran a poll saying, uh, which is the most extreme album ever recorded? People clearly wrote in and said, it's Slayer, it's Morbid Angel. Kill them all! And so on and so on, Yeah, yeah. But actually... <laughs> They wrote themselves that they thought the metal machine music was the most extreme album ever made. Now mm. that showed serious intelligence and, and a little bit of stepping outside the box. But I have a question for you. I can see you're about to talk, which is why I want to say it. We can defend or not defend the artistic merit of this album all day, and I love doing that. Would you defend its musical quality? Of course, yeah. That's... You like the sounds on the record. Forget the I artistic didn't say, I didn't say I like the sound. You said, is there anything to defend about
1: the musicality? Yeah, okay, yes, yeah. of
0: course. Do you like the sounds that you hear when they come off the record? Liking
1: sounds doesn't mean defending musicality. Uh, simple Are questions. you
0: saying... No, no, it's not... Do you me- like listening to the album? No. Does anyone? Probably Blue not. Reed used to
1: like listening to it.
0: So my point is only this, that this is where we find a brilliant, brilliant turning point or a sort of a catalyst for discussing something's musical merit as opposed to its artistic merit, which to me are completely different. I love the fact that he released it, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that he recorded it, that they made it a double album just to take the piss even more... But I think it's utter bollocks at the same time. That's what fascinates See, me I See, dis- I don't what, agree what's your with you. Take? Yeah, No, I yeah. totally disagree. Let's have
1: it. I totally disagree. I think what you're talking about is a visceral, immediate reaction. But if you listen to great jazz music or great classical music or any of the great electronic composers, yeah. you listen to Philip Glass, you know, you listen to Steve Reich, mm. you listen to On the Beach... You know, you listen to some of those... They don't even know what to call them because they're not classical, they're not jazz, they're avant-garde moments of silence. You know, is that musicality? Is that something to think about in the same way you think about art? Just because I don't like it or I think it's bollocks I think says more about the listener than it does about the piece of work. The fact is it's a statement and you can... Dismiss it, you can get angry with it, you mm. can call it bollocks, mm. Mm. but you can do that to all kinds of art. There are still people today that look at abstract art and go, Well, that's bollocks. Yeah. Tracy Ehrman's bed.
0: Yeah, well, well no, I could have I done that. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I couldn't. No, and believe me, I despise that knee jerk reaction myself. The point I was only making was that I thought the music was crap, but that it was a wonderful artistic statement that I'm glad the was made. The music was crap. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. yeah. No, I can't. No, I totally
1: disagree. Uh, okay. I fundamentally disagree. You're imposing your own idea of what yes. good and bad yeah. is. As a subjective listener, I feel I can. But how, wh- what are you comparing it to? So um, what piece of electronic avant-garde art music would you say was better and why? I wouldn't.
0: Because so I know you're not really engaging
1: with what it is. You're saying, I listened to it, I thought it was
0: bollocks. I took the time to listen to it all the way through. Once? And decided it was bollocks. I decided that I wouldn't assign any merit to it musically, artistically is a different matter, musically because I know I could sit down there with a couple of pedals and a guitar and do it myself. Perhaps that's the wrong view, but that was my view.
1: Could you sit down and do the same to a Metallica record? Could I play the stuff on a a Metallica album? Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah,
0: but it wouldn't sound like Metallica, would it? No, it wouldn't, but Metallica plunge a lot of technicality and artistry into it, which I admire. Uh, that's a a lot. Lot. I think we're going uh, around in circles. I mean, i well, no, no. here's the thing: you said it's bollocks musically. Why don't we stick not to that artistically? Musically, not artistically. Say it yes. again. Musically, I think it sounds terrible. Artistically, I think it's fantastic. Okay. that's my view. And when here's my view. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Totally disagree. Go on. I've already gone on. So, the, how
0: many times have I got to go because on? Because I don't understand what you're saying. Are you saying? Well, you're that, never going to understand. Well, it. try it one more time. Try me one more time. Are you saying it musically? Actually, this is pretty good stuff. Musically,
1: I think it's a fantastic, unrepeatable statement. And if you look at the tradition it comes out of, mm. it fits extremely well. And at that time in the history of rock music, it was an extraordinary thing to do. That I don't disagree with at all. But when you say musically, it's bollocks, that's like saying, well, it's not catchy. You know, it's like saying, I can't hum it. It's like saying, well, there's there's no chorus. I mean, okay. what I'm saying to you is, yeah. you've made your
0: statement, it's bollocks. Here's my statement, no, it isn't. Yeah, okay. Okay? And this is what's wonderful about it, right? In this case, it's a fairly extreme example of, of what would pass for a double LP from a... You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, well, it's, it's... It's an extreme statement. It is. I, I'm not going to join you on
1: any of this. Okay. It's an extreme statement if you happen to be listening to the Rolling Stones that day or you want something that is much more accessible you know, and within your own parameters right, yeah. of what rock music is. Contextually, okay. The, RCA marketed it with a picture of Lou Reed on the cover clad in black leather with his dark glasses. It was one of the most exciting LP covers of any Lou Reed album. But Lou Reed didn't build that sleeve. Lou Reed built the music. Mm. Lou Reed built the sound. We're not talking music in the conventional sense. We're talking sound. And if you can talk about sonic landscapes or sound in its purest form, then... I just think you can't apply this very narrow set of rules to a piece of art that has nothing to say to that narrow set of rules. But if you listen to Steve Reich, if you listen to Philip Glass, if you listen to Stockhausen, if you listen to some of the Velvet Underground, Mm. European Sun at the end of that, that's pure noise. Mm. There's nothing melodic or anything that would make sense to a conventional musician. It's about that wonderful opportunity that pop music offered us in the 60s and 70s, which Mm. was to do something completely rule-breaking, to Mm. do something where there were no maps, to do something where people went, what the fuck is that? Mm -hmm. That's not right. That's bollocks. I'm not having that. And Lou Reed did that not just on metal machine music. Mm. That was the reaction he got to The Velvet Underground. That was the reaction he got to Berlin. That was the reaction he got to pretty much all of his records, up until and including Lulu, Mm, mm. which got even more vehement reactions because it was bringing in an audience that had no experience or appreciation of what Lou Reed was about, but purely going, it's Metallica. What were everyone you doing?
0: Yeah, they had no chance.
1: So let's agree to disagree and move on. I think we agree, actually. Now, the only thing I would add on your behalf is this was at a very, very dissipated time in his life when he was mainlining speed mm. on a regular basis. He was staying up for four or five days at a time. His significant other at this point, the love of his life was what these days we would call a transgender person called Rachel. In fact, Rachel hadn't had any surgery. So Rachel was actually a man named Richard Mm. who was taking hormones to grow breasts and inhibit facial hair. And when Richard wanted to have the surgery to get rid of his genitals, Lou Reed freaked out because he liked the idea of Rachel, but he wanted Rachel with a male genital. A bit extra. Mm. Lou, in those days... Spent most of, all of his life inhabiting these really dark after-hours clubs in New York. Yeah. All S&M, yeah. heavily gay, heavily, not no, gay is such the wrong Transgressive, word. Transgressive, you know. Transgressive, but in a mm. purely sexual sense. I yeah. mean, Lou Reed at this point, one of his favourite things was to get men to shit in his mouth. Oh, that's nice. So Lou Reed is living a life... Not as other people live it. Indeed. In fact, on the cover of Metal Machine Music, there's a famous line, it's just a one quote from Lou Reed where he says, My week beats your year. <laughs> Now, I remember reading that when I was about 16 and just thinking, what a fantastic line. But it's only as the years have gone by and one learns more about that period yeah. that you go, fucking week did beat yeah, my ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't recall having men shitting in my mouth. So now you kind of get a context to which Lou Reed went, you know what would be fabulous? Yeah, yeah
0: no, I, I, thank you for putting all that in context. I do grasp it. I mean, you know, Mick, I'll listen to Scott Walker, right? You know, I will listen to industrial music. I'll listen to noise music and I do perceive
1: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: This is Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Well, well, as we know, it didn't destroy his career, right? I mean, he continued and, it, and went on to well, it nearly, be very productive. it sort
1: of. nearly did. Mm. I mean, it nearly yeah, did. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it, Berlin at least had 10 tracks, and Jack yeah. Bruce played on it, and yeah. Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner played guitars, and it was produced by Bob Ezra. You know, it was a identifiable piece of yeah. work, yeah. even yeah. if it was a downer. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a downer. Metal machine music, I mean, just forget it. Yeah. Forget it. People you're, still don't. He's, it. People still hold it against him, mm, and mm, that's, mm. I think, the point I'm really defending. Is that, you know, people go, "Oh, you know," you're always going, "Well, you don't get it." It's not about getting it; it's about letting it. It's about allowing there to be a space for something like this to exist without yeah.
0: insisting. How dare you? Yeah. Or what the fuck? You yeah, know. I'd like to uh, at this point give a shout out to. Uh one of my half-brothers, whose name is Moss, he's doing a PhD in music composition at the moment. I said to him the other day, talk a bit about the music you're making as part of your PhD. What's it like? And he looked at me and said, look, like, can I not say what it's like? I can't even say whether I like it. <laughs> and he explained this very clearly. He said, it's not about whether I like it or not like it. It's about mm. whether it exists. And he talked a little bit about some of the things that you've been saying over the last few minutes, which is that you cannot assign your own parameters to a piece of art that has no recognisable parameters. And so I think that's an interesting mindset to adopt, to understand that some things are pure and of themselves, but that can be interpreted in many, many ways, and people sometimes just won't get them. People's reaction will be hostile, which I imagine...
1: It has remained of. hostile for 40 years. One last qualifier, and I think this is true of all Lou Reed's work, is that I think he is inviting the hostility, clearly. Mm-hmm. He was up for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I mean, straight after this, he makes Coney Island Baby. Right, which was a tribute to his youth, I guess, right? The kind of uh, nostalgic,
0: romantic sort of holiday thing? The title
1: song was. I mean, I've just described Lou at his craziest in the 70s and before that with Warhol. As a kid, he was really into football, American football. And people don't understand, actually, how big he was into it for his whole life. Lou could sit around and have a beer and a burger and talk about the game. Amazing. I know, with Rachel sitting next to him. The point is, Coney Island Baby the Track begins with him, spoken word almost, you know, I wanna play football for the coach. Mm-hmm. But in 76, when that came out, I remember listening to thinking, this is so camp, you know, yeah. I wanna play football for the coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Clearly yeah. a metaphor for some homosexual fantasy yeah, sure. in yeah. which the
0: coach, you know, no, he wanted to play football for the coach. <laughs> <laughs> We just didn't know Lou had it in him. He was messing with us yet again.
1: Although at the end of that track, it's, it's a beautiful track. At the end of it, you hear Patti Smith doing harmony mm, vocals. Mm, yeah. And right at the end, he says, I can't remember the precise words, but he says something like, this one goes out to Rachel. I swear I'd give the whole thing up for you. Mm. It's the final track on the album. That's yeah. how the album is. Yeah. Now for Lou Reed, no one knew who Rachel was at that point, apart from people that knew Lou. So I just assumed it was a, a lady. <laughs> But then to say, this one goes out to Rachel. I swear I'd give the whole thing up for mm. you. A real declaration of love. Yeah. He messed with your mind. Amazing, yeah. Completely, always. Yeah. By the way, if Joel does sound a little, uh, yeah, he's eating
0: a pork pie with um, pickle. Yeah, before you know, I... I um, wouldn't do something like that. Because, listeners, this is exhausting on us.
1: It's really hard work. <laughs> we need to keep our uh, blood sugar high. So I'm eating a
0: pork pie, and I'm hoping my friend Mick is going to have one in a minute. So back to Lou Reed let's move the story along. Wait but we were talking about punk boys I don't understand.
1: He spent the rest of the 70s challenging. Yeah. defying expectations after the Velvet Underground after Berlin after metal machine music there comes another album another mm. double album which again I love mm. Take No Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is him at the bottom line in New York, a club that he loved. I mean, he would do six nights there. Yeah. And this, again, is him at his most outré. Mm. I mean, he um, the version of Walk on the Wild Side on Take No Prisoners is about 16 or 17 minutes long because yeah. he's barely singing it. He essentially tells the story of how he came to write it. And in that, he's telling the story of his life. Yeah. Meanwhile, all these crazy New Yorkers who've come to see Lou Reed, kick mm. ass, mm. are screaming to him to get on with it. And he's like, hey, shut up, <laughs> you know. When I wrote the book, my chapter on that album was called Hey, Shut Up. And mm-hmm. and someone goes, hey, look, are you political? And he goes, political? He goes, you give me an issue, I'll give you a tissue. <laughs> you can wipe my ass with it. Oh, more anus references. Yeah. Did so the punks p- take to loop? Uh, well, they sort of had to, because without the Velvet Underground, without Iggy, yeah. no Bowie, uh, no Bowie, no punk. So, yes, he was one of the... Um, the Golden Gods, as it were. Yeah. But by the time punk as we now think of it... Yeah. I was going to say exploded onto the scene. What a dreadful cliche. No, no, keep it in. By the time punk exploded onto the scene... <laughs> <laughs> and you've got this very narrow parameter where it's got to be short songs, yeah. guitar-based drums,
0: angry vocals! Yeah,
1: safety pins. Or, or... Lou, Lou Reed, of course, rejects that yeah. wholesale. Yeah and starts making some of his jazziest, mm. adult-oriented music. There's a great album cover, Growing Up In Public, which is a late 70s album, and he's on the cover and he looks every bit of his 40-odd years yeah. old. Yeah. Very straight-looking, a nice haircut yeah. and a brown jumper. It's not the cover of Metal Machine Music. <laughs> you know, just at that time when everybody is is outrageously attired, yeah. and Lou Reed comes out looking like James Taylor's
0: sensible brother. (sighs) Older brother. yeah, Older, boring brother. Can I float a question past you? Yes. My theory is that the 80s took away the balls of many, many amazingly transgressive 70s artists, uh, including Lou Reed. No. Okay. (laughs) I just look at Lou Reed in the 80s. I suppose I'm going right to the end of the 80s and looking at New York in fairness. You think New York had no balls? Mm, Was it as shocking as metal machine music? No. Yeah, but you wouldn't have wanted it to be, would you? Well, I didn't we have a view at the time when I was a kid. I okay, but you, you, you can't you, Nothing I, yeah. he ever did was as shocking okay. as Metal Machine. Music. That's, not a, that's not yeah, a fair yeah. comparison. I remember listening to New York, New York, and, and not New York, New York, but New York, and thinking, um, well, this is great. Uh, Dirty Boulevard, pleasant, nice guitar, tune, you know, a bit rocky. Oh, how nice. I must investigate more you about this new. You familiar fella. with his work. Only though the big hits, like Walk on the Wild Side and whatever else he'd had. Walk um, on the Wild Side, his only hit. Yeah. I mean, as a youth, that was it, really. I had to go back and discover the stuff later on. And um, I remember thinking, this bloke looks quite sort of sedate, doesn't he? Uh, as you just said, he, he looked like someone's, James Taylor's brother, right? No, but there, there well, was, he, was meant- he still as... Right on it and full of energy and power and bile and, and spit and venom as he had been in the 70s. Yeah, say. but in a very okay.
1: different way. Right, I mean, right, yeah. the first album of the 80s was The Blue Mask. <laughs> mm. Robert Quine on wild, wild guitar. Fernando, can't remember his name, on bass. You'd love the bass on The Blue Mask. Yeah. You'd love it. It's beautiful. It's one of those hollow Mum it's basses. <laughs> oh, a uh,
0: fretless. Yeah. We'll do this um, well. the producers. But, it the but if
1: you listen to the track um, The Blue Mask, you know, the lyrics and that are something like, uh, we tied his hands behind his back and cut his throat. You know, he had given up drugs. Mm. He'd now uh, left Rachel and married Sylvia, his wife, who became his manager. Mm. A bit of a Sharon Osborne thing going on. Yes. A very conventional, business minded, careerist woman. Mm who essentially saved his career on a business level, got him into rehab several times. And by the time you get the blue mask, he's not drinking, he's not uh, taking drugs, and he's writing amazing stuff. Right. And by the end of the 80s, actually, we've got a Lou Reed who is much more sensible in his personal life... But it is, is craving another hit. I mean, on, on Legendary Hearts, there was a track... Oh, Sorry, on uh, New Sensations, the album I reviewed for Kerrang!, there was yeah. a track called I Love You, Suzanne, which was the perfect three-minute pop song. Hmm. And again, because of Lou Reed's baggage and his whole history, you're, you're thinking, I love you, Suzanne. He, he's so ironic, you know. <laughs> no, he wanted a hit single. Yeah. MTV came in, he made videos. You know, he's now in his 40s, he's coming up to fifty. His albums were like number would get to 185 in the yeah. American chart. Yeah. Would get nowhere over here. Only France ever really bought his records. Mm. Mm. No. but you can see why Louis.
0: Oh, Louis the uh, with the Zagast ear. Yeah, cigarettes. Was he a wealthy man at this point in his life? Well,
1: I mean, uh, wealthy compared to to
0: me or you? Oh, fuck yeah, mm. yeah.
1: I mean, anybody that can do six nights at the bottom line, anybody that can sell out concerts all over the world anybody's got the kind of back catalogue he did we yeah. I mean, yeah. don't forget in the 90s straight after new york the velvet underground have a reunion yes. they do wembley arena yeah, yeah they're all over the arts programs yeah. i mean new york was in many ways a sort of a comeback album. Yeah. It, it was a new deal with Warners. Mm, mm. Lou was kind of famous for putting in three or four amazing tracks and the rest would be a bit Lou Reed. New York was was every single track was a killer. Mm, mm. And it reestablished him as a as a frontline artist. He was no longer sort of where well, he's not as good as he used to be. Yeah in terms of his career it brought him back into mm. the 90s as a guy who mm. was potent force again that's when I met him and interviewed him tell me I loved every minute you know all that stuff you were saying earlier about the, the journalists uh, the, finding him hard work yeah yeah I love that. So set the scene. When was this and what was it for? It was in Los Angeles in about 89, Mm.
0: 90. Oh, for the New York album? Yes. Right, right.
1: And of course, he's doing lots of interviews because he's very pleased with this record and it has potential and it was fantastic. I remember we went in and uh, he ignored me completely at first (laughs) and then he was like, oh, oh, I have to do this now, you know. And I just couldn't stop grinning, you know. I mean, I ghosted the memoir of Don Arden and I used to just with glee listen to his stories of beating people up and stubbing cigars out in their foreheads you know mm. so Lou gives me the whole thing and I'm just I couldn't stop laughing it was just wonderful I loved it and eventually I think he kind of saw how much I was enjoying yeah. the the whole act and he started laughing oh that's great and uh, suddenly we got on, he said, where'd you get your jacket? Because in those days, people, if you see me now, you'd never know. But in the late 80s, I used to have, you know, my, my own Lou Reed look going on. I had leather jacket, mm. hair, skull earrings and... Did you have says, his sexual habits as well? No, I didn't. Mm. Well, there's no, always time to develop those. But there's still time, Joel. Mm. I mean, if mm. if you are feeling you need a dump later on, let me know. But... Um, <laughs> And he was like, Where'd you get your jacket? And I had this sapphire earring. God. Yeah, I like your earring. You know, I thought he's, oh. I like your earring. He didn't tell me. He was like, I like your earring. <laughs> tell, Phil Linet again. <laughs> Phil Liner <laughs> Phil was there and he said, Lou likes your earring. Do you
0: like Fleetwood Mac? Lou loves it, don't you, Lou? Go on there. Uh,
1: was it like on the records, you know? The, the dirty, yeah, yeah, dirty exactly. Boulevard. But deep.
0: Mick. I'm gonna cry down the dirty boulevard. <laughs> hello, <Mick>. hello, <laughs> That's hello. not Lou Reed. Really hello, Mick. Hello, Mick. Hello, Mick. Was <laughs> <What's> that <laughs> Bob Geldof? Did, it did sound a bit Irish there, yeah. yeah. It's because I was saying Mick. If you actually hello?
1: give me a bit of space, <clears throat> I'll give it a go. <sighs> deep breath. <sighs> hey. Hang on, I on, Hang on, hang on. Hey. <laughs> <on, hang> <laughs> hey. No. Come on. I like. Nah, it. fuck that. I can't do it. I, see, hang on. I take the earphones off. Hang on, hang on i like, <laughs> forget it. Right. I can't do it. Okay, do I? But everybody knows his voice. Deep blue Reed voice. Hey, I like your earring. Mm. And, uh, and he meant that. Who knows? No, okay. I just laughed and said, I like yours. <laughs> and he's like, where did you get it? I went, in a shop, you know. and uh sort of and, like
0: Velvet Underground lyrics, this. Yeah.
1: I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And at the end, he said to me, it's so nice to talk to someone who gets my music. Wow. And, uh, and I thought that was a wonderful thing. You know, Just was, a bit, different. Lou
0: Reed. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Dead Rock Stars. Carpe diem, baby. Was he aware of his own stature? You know how some people are. He,
1: he was. Them, well, he
0: and, he you know. had this thing where, you
1: know, Lemmy had this, yeah. okay? He was entirely aware of his stature, but he was also entirely convinced that no one else was. You know, he was oh, uh, carrying
0: that chip on his shoulder, was he?
1: They all do, Joel. You know, the the Mavericks and the Outlaws, yeah. whether it's Lemmy or Lou Reed or whoever, you know, they're like uh, Joe Bonamassa isn't in this category, right? But I saw him play once and he made a gag. He said, 12 uh, years, eight <laughs> albums, no hits. <laughs> and everybody cheered. Yeah. Of course, they want a fucking hit. All right. Don't we all mm-hmm. you know, you want a hit so that you can go doesn't mean anything to me. Oh,
0: I mean but I going... use it for myself. If other people like it, it's a bonus. Yeah, it's a bonus, yeah.
1: But if you don't have a hit, it's like, what's wrong with everybody? You know, don't they recognise my genius? But I remember interviewing Iggy Pop once. Yeah. And I'd interviewed him quite a few times before, and he didn't remember me. I'd got older and my look had changed, and uh No mullet. I'd no mullet and I was wearing glasses and I said I was talking to him about success. There's a wind up. I said, yeah, but you don't even have any gold records, do you? I said, even White Lion have got a platinum album. Oh,
0: you said this to him?
1: Yeah, and he said, uh, he goes, success, mm-hmm. I can do Iggy. Mm-hmm. No, I can't. And he goes, success. He goes, I pronounce that suck-cess. Wow, that's deep. So Lou was somewhat like that, more, mm-hmm. much more articulate mm-hmm. than Iggy. Another famous line that Lou Reed said, because there were so many Lou Reed imitators over the years.
0: Are there really many? Oh, I need in, to challenge in, you on that. Who is a Lou Reed imitator? In the 70s, David Bowie. Bowie imitated Lou. Joel, you're such such an innocent, aren't you? Listeners, every time I go out with Mick, Mick tells me (laughs) something that makes me feel like such a klutz that it wasn't so obvious. The scales fall from my eyes. I feel about 10 years old. Go on. Bowie imitated Lou. Bowie Bowie built a whole career
1: out of the rift to Sweet Jane, you know. Well... Bowie used to do White Light, Why Heat, I'm Waiting for the that, Man. Bowie produced Transformer. Bowie brought Lou Reed back from the dead in terms of a career. God, there were so many people in the 70s. Everybody was influenced by Lou Reed. Mm. It's like saying, did Andy Warhol have an influence?
0: Was I Ted Nugent influenced by Lou Reed?
1: No, Ted wasn't, but I think that's easy to tell as Ted is a racist thug who still likes killing animals. Lou Reed only really was interested in killing himself, you know. Bloody and yeah. Lou had the famous line, nobody does Lou Reed better than me.
0: This is amazing. It really is amazing to me. The scale's falling from my eyes. Listen, we need to power through the 90s and into the present day. What did he do of note before he met Metallica? <laughs> <laughs>
1: What, he... <laughs> what a weird question. I well, I mean, rather than go through a whole discography, I mean, mm-hmm. there was the... Talk Velvet... about the
0: latter era. Of well, the Velvet life.
1: Underground Reformation was very interesting. Mm. The album he made with John Cale after Andy Warhol died, Songs for Drella. Mm. Drella was their nickname for Andy. Mm. That was a fantastic piece of work. The Raven, based on the Edgar Allan Poe mm. piece, that was a fabulous piece of work. He made a series of extraordinary albums uh, as he moved into his 60s. Mm. Why they were so extraordinary was that, other than Bob Dylan and, I think, latterly Leonard Cohen, it's hard to think of any major artist, particularly one that made such a splash as a younger, cutting-edge artist, that was able to document their own mortality, what it was like to grow old. I mean, David Bowie achieved it on his final album, Black Star. Yeah. But these are exceptions. Leonard Cohen achieved it on his last album. You depict the shadows lengthening. There you go. But Lou Reed over a series of albums. Dylan did something very similar at the time. Lou Reed did something similar. and, And these are exceedingly personal, brilliantly written and conveyed albums. But by this point, he is, as all the world has become over the last 10 years or so, much more in his own bubble, as it were. Mm. And so, you know, the empire is built. The most extraordinary battles have been fought and lost or won. Mm -hmm. And we now have this extraordinary artist that we know isn't going to be with us for much longer, making these incredibly personal albums, brilliant musicians and great songs, great lyrics. But clearly the days of will he ever have another hit or mm, mm, is he going to tell the audience to fuck off? I mean, he was still doing stuff like that. You didn't mess with Lou, ever. Mm, mm. But by the time you get to the album he made with Metallica, the appeal for Lou was uh, not since the Velvet Underground had he worked with a real band. Yeah, He'd worked with some fantastic yeah, musicians. Session in the, guys, in yeah. the, so he'd played with great musicians, but he'd never had an actual band. And as you know, there's a big difference between a band, a true band that have played together for a long time, particularly one like Metallica who purport to live on the edge mm. purport to make music that isn't cut and pasted for the radio or for easy consumer consumption. Yeah. The attraction for him was to write some material that could be represented in a way that you can't hire guys to do that. Yeah. And Metallica, I'm not going to pretend to read James Hetfield's mind, but Lars Ulrich, of course, you know, knew all about uh, the Velvet Underground. Cliff Burton was a massive Velvet Underground fan. You know, Mm -hmm. Cliff Burton was one of those few uh, rock and metal guys that loved Lou Reed. Mm. So Lars, in his constant search for credibility... Which is one of the reasons Metallica aren't Slayer, you yeah. know, aren't Anthrax, yeah. or Iron Maiden. Yeah. You know, Iron Maiden could not have made an album with Lou Reed. You know? no. Metallica just about pulled it off yeah. in terms of, you know, the Lou Reed audience seeing it as I can go with that. I can think about that. The Metallica audience not at all because they don't yeah. understand who this guy is or why Metallica yeah. would want to. Like the opening line is about cutting her tits off or something, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: So I I have always tried to ignore the peanut gallery, you know. (laughs) The uh, millions of Metallica fans who didn't get it and didn't try. Maybe thousands, I don't know. Maybe they tried, who knows? I certainly did. My view uh, of um, Lulu is that uh, it didn't particularly work musically, but it is a fantastic piece of art. And I cherish it, actually, although I rarely listen to it. So it's not dissimilar to how I think about, you know, metal machine music. I will sit down and listen to that last 10-minute orchestral ending of Junior Dad. Because it's amazing. I think it's a quartet or a quintet who are just coming in and out of a chord and resolving. Very drone-like. It's it's totally drone-like. It's very harks back to metal machine We didn't even mention Lou's guitar tuning that he invented, which is where all the six strings were the same note, right? I didn't know about that. That's a musician thing. Well, if you listen, it's not a major deal, and I always kind of bring the tone down a bit by introducing something like this. But if you listen to all Tomorrow's Parties, when Lou is doing his weird sort of drone solo, every string has the same note. Really? Yeah. That's where you get that cool Sitarry drony effect. He called it the Austrian. Rich tuning because he'd written that song hadn't he, right? yeah, 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 yeah yeah when i wrote my review i said this is the sound of a lot of very wealthy men sitting around a room and no producer or editor is going to dare to say you know what fellas we could probably take a cut of tunes out here well, we could probably knock out 10 minutes here because they would have been told to fuck off and i'm glad that that did happen because i love that very long self-indulgent piece of orchestral noodling okay i'm going to disagree with you okay pray, pray do when the velvet
1: underground recorded sister ray yeah which was 17 minutes long the engineer in the room actually walked out after 3 minutes well, hold up stop eating a pie and interrupting me just shut up and listen he actually walked out because he said i'm not going to sit here for this shit yeah now let me tell you something they weren't wealthy men they hadn't sold shit record wise They couldn't get a gig outside of New York. Mm. And yet they made a 17-minute track called Sister Ray, which was about shooting up, masturbation, and a dead body in the room. And you talk about a one-note drone, a repetitive momentum, hypnotic, hypnotic, hypnotic. You know, it was right there. Yeah. And they didn't own shit. Mm. So... That thing you hear at the end of Junior Dad, that was Lars and Metallica trying to get away from the idea of being a regular, standard, does what it says on the tin thrash band. And that for Lou Reed was a chorus. That for Lou Reed was how you made music. Yeah.
0: What did you think of the record then? masterpiece Mm. as i
1: said at the time Mm. i said it was a masterpiece i wrote a review of it in classic rock where i gave it 10 out of 10 and had the reviews editor who ironically i had hired some years before come back to me and tell me that he and the current editor had gone to listen to the album themselves and decided uh, there was no way they could run my review because at best it was only 7 out of ten. And they couldn't wholeheartedly recommend it to classic rock readers. So I had to rewrite my review and give it 7 out of 10. Mm. And that, to me, tells you all you need to know about Lou Reed, (laughs) about fucking journalists, (laughs) and about the incredible furore that surrounded every artistic statement Lou Reed made throughout his entire career. Did Lemmy ever make a piece of... Work that would be considered so transgressive that I would be asked to rewrite my review and give it a lower score. I mean, I find it it beggars belief, really.
0: Sorry, the answer is no. Of course,
1: my reply was, "We should put this on the cover of the magazine and let's have a real conversation about it." Um, was not to
0: be. No,
1: no. I can't tell you what was in their heads, other than they didn't get it. And if you say, "Well, you don't get it," they go, "Well, it's easy to say you don't get it." Mm-hmm. And that's why I go, no, no, forget that. you just got to let it, you know. I mean, to me, Metallica making an extraordinary statement that no other major heavy metal band would ever have made. And it doesn't matter whether you like it or you don't like it. As we've said. It's just a fantastic thing that will never happen again. And isn't that what rock music is supposed to be
0: about? (sighs) Freedom. Well, to me, art elicits responses. That's the point. And it should elicit a variety of responses. And some of those can be powerful. You know, they can be hostile. They can be angry. They can be all sorts of negative stuff. The point is that you react. What does rock mean? You know, rock means loud, jumpy around music, doesn't it? You know? And that's well, what... when I was growing up, it meant freedom of expression. It meant
1: fuck the man. Mm. Make your own rules. Don't take the received wisdom. Growing your hair was because you weren't allowed to. Yeah. All you guys listening to this with long hair, that was, be- that was because it was a way of saying, fuck you, I'm going to bring my own ideas mm. and I should be allowed to do whatever I want to do. And if and you
0: don't like it, you don't have to, but don't tell me I can't do it. So here we are talking about abstract concepts that, that are important. And what's triggered this conversation is an album by Lou Reed and Metallica, which is, I think, its true function and its legacy.
1: I think several albums. I think from the very first Velvet Underground album up to the very last Lou Reed album with Metallica, every step that man made in his career caused controversy. People didn't like it. They didn't understand it. They resented him for it. And I think that is an staggering achievement. Not even Bob Dylan can say
0: that. And it was his last album? Yeah. Mm. Now, we normally uh, end these uh, amazing things that we do by awarding marks out of five, do we not, to Mm. the subject under discussion? Um, I've now got a pork pie, by the way. Well, I'm going to make you do this while eating (laughs) a pork pie, right? So, star quality, stroke image, you know, of Lou Reed, star quality, man. Everything is so redefined through the prism of Lou Reedness when we're talking about him. It's so hard to assign these things, I think, but what's your view? Ooh... That was quite camp, by the way, when you said that. I'm going to say
1: four, because I think he had one of the ultimate images. Yeah. But if you look on YouTube at him dancing around in his early solo career, it's pretty embarrassing. (laughs) And if you look at the videos he made in the 80s, I mean, most people's videos in the 80s were cringe-inducing. His are too. But, of course, he was the rock and roll animal. But star quality... He was a ferret, wasn't he? He was an anti-star.
0: He was an anti-star. Please. (laughs) Carry on. Carry on, ladies. All right, influence. Lou Reed's influence. Five. Okay, drone rock, noise core, industrial music. These are all things that exist and make a lot Punk, of money. yeah. Glam. Being mm. miserable. Hating journalists.
1: No, I think Dylan art and rock. John Lennon art had the rock. march on him there.
0: You know. mm. Art, rock. Rock as art. Does, yeah. it, does it get more artistically infused than that? you know, factory scene. I well, think. that was his first and foremost
1: motivation mm. and priority. Milieu. All right.
0: So
1: Sorry, five. I in. Yeah, five. five. Okay, in. good.
0: His taste for excess. It's not like you to butt in. <laughs> taste for excess. Uh, ten. Uh, when he was being excessive. Ten. And then he cleaned up. Did he not and start doing Tai Chi and all this stuff in the 90s? And But even that he did to excess. Good. And finally, death as a career move. Has his star risen since he, you know, passed on to? No. Past is new? No. Did he have much more in him of greatness, do you think? Oh, undoubtedly.
1: Mm. As I say, he was one of those very few artists. Uh, I mean, God bless Phil Liner and Bon yep. and Lemmy and Dio, but they'd gone way past the point of ever doing anything new and startling. It was yeah. always going to be more of the same. Uh, Lou Reed, you know, his last
0: album was Lulu with Metallica. It's incredible. That's who we're talking about right now. I have particularly enjoyed this one, Mick. I always enjoy the things we do, but we have not had a conversation to date until this one where we've talked about the essence of what music is, right? Mm. And, and mm. the narratives and the parameters that surround it. And I've loved it and it's brilliant and we could talk all day, could we not? Perhaps we will.
1: If I didn't have this pork pie in my mouth, mm, we could yeah. definitely talk more. We could talk more.
0: All right, good. So, well, let's uh, swing uh, rapidly on to our next dead rock star. And uh, let, well, there are some links compiled here by Ian. Do I need to read some of um, No, I'd like to finish your three, please. <laughs> now, uh, the next episode that you're going to hear next week. There are uh, some similarities. Joel, Joel you. You,
1: you do this. You do this. I okay. to.
0: Moving swiftly on to the rock stars you're going to hear about next time. And I say rock stars advisedly because it's more than one this time. Um, there are some similarities. Now, like the Velvet Underground, our next two dead rock stars also had a gruff, grumpy, outspoken frontman in their band with an occasional taste for smack. No longer, of course. Lou, he was vicious, was he not? Our next rock stars were vulgar. All right, adjectives with a V. You don't hear them very often. Lou, of course, suggested a walk on the wild side. Our next dead rock stars recommended you take a walk on home, boy. And the only way to say that is walk. That. walk on home, boy. And finally, and this is brilliant, and I would like to credit our amazing producer Ian Callahan at 7 Digital for coming up with this absolute nugget. Lou made metal machine music. These music machines made metal. Metal Well everyone, it's been wonderful talking to you. Please tune in again next week. Share the heck and share the heck again out of this podcast wherever you found it. And it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Mick. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,